On today's pod, I'm talking with my friend Liz. Liz has helped me navigate everything from what's in my shopping cart all the way up to what to expect during IVF. Today, I'm learning more about her journey. Here we go. Liz, you and I have known each other for, dare I say, 10 years. I know, it's not <laughs> scary. But yes, yes, we have a whole decade. One of my favorite memories was my near-death experience with you. This is back in the day when we worked at the same place together, and we often would go get little afternoon treats at Dunkin' mm-hmm. Donuts. Yeah. And I guess one day I did not look before running across the street and almost got <laughs> annihilated by a cab. And yes. I think when that happened, I was like, okay, we can be friends forever because not only <laughs> did you laugh when that happened, but also you would have been the last person to see me alive. So... I felt like a really strong connection with you that day. It cemented my um, my fixture in your life, my placement in your life. (laughs) (laughs) So for our listeners, which are everybody, aka nobody. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? These imaginary (laughs) people. Yes. Me, you, and a handful of people that have conned into listening to this. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a working mom of two. I'm in my late thirties. And so I'm kind of in this weird transitional period of, you know, it feels like you've been living the adult life for a while, but you realize that you have a lot more to go. That That's a little overwhelming and a little horrifying. Like a great example is I feel like I finally channeled through a new adult level for the first time ever. I actually washed all the dishes last night and then put them away before I went to sleep. Dang. I feel like that's like a new adult level that I've never... I never reached. I've never reached before. I have not reached that either. So I will strive for that status. Right. It may never happen again because I'm going to be honest. It was a little stressful, but, (laughs) but I did it. And I I feel, I feel accomplished now. Everything else is good for today. (laughs) So I know that when you talk about your two little ones, when you had gone through IVF, I was not even aware of what really IVF was. But now that I'm going through it, I just want to thank you for being so supportive and the wonderful friend you are, because without you, I don't think that I would get to where I am. So thank you. And also, I'm so sorry that I could not have been more supportive during your journey because I just did not know. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and you don't need to be sorry because here, I I mean, I think you understand it now, but infertility is not only does it have a different reaction and a different feeling for everybody. It's such a unique personal experience and journey. It also is, it's kind of hard to bring up because it, it toes that line of too much information versus I want to connect with you. And you also don't want pity when you're going through it. And so sometimes it's just easier to give people kind of just the the cliff notes version mm-hmm. of what's going on in your life. And then also you just don't know how judgmental people are going to be. When you're at an emotional point where it's just physically and emotionally and mentally exhausting, the last thing you need is somebody else to like put upon you. So it just becomes easier to kind of insulate yourself and kind of you know, go into your little turtle shell and just power through. It's weird. I was talking with my husband on this because when we went through the whole thing, we were probably, I was probably what, 32 when we started trying. And my mom had gone through infertility. So she had a really hard time getting pregnant. Granted, this was like, you know, in the seventies and eighties, but it took my parents 11 years to get pregnant. And they had gone the adoption route and, you know, they were, they were all gearing up to it. 
And then my mom ended up having taking Clomid and it, it worked and kind of, you know, a lot has changed by now, but the, I can, so in my head, my mom had made that kind of a very obvious, always knew it was happening. So it never, there was never a stigma of infertility that I felt like I, it was a bad thing. It just more, it just was. And mm-hmm. I kind of always suspected that I would have an issue. I don't know why I can't, I can't tell you why I felt that way, but it didn't shock me that I did. You just mentioned that you kind of always knew in the back of your mind that something was maybe a little off, but how did you know for sure that there was an issue? If you're like under 35 and it's taking more than like six months to a year, something's probably up. Like it's not, that's not a, especially if you hit a year mark, that's not common. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's common because a lot of people have infertility, but usually that's an indication that something's wrong. And so I had actually talked to my OB, which I feel like everybody does as their first step, if you don't know any better. And, you know, she was like, you know, let's go on Clomid, let's try all the things. And this would be my, my point to say, if, if it has been six months, if it has been a year, go find a fertility doctor. Do not wait. Do not let your OB be your, your kind of voice reason. That is not their specialty. And you never know what the issue is. It could be you. It could be him. It could be a combination, right? You don't know. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That's the same advice I give to every person that I've met. And, you know, with mine, we kind of went back and forth with my OB before I started to just go to an RE. And, you know, that's when we kind of figured out my egg quality was the issue. Yeah. And just having a resolution to like what the problem was was helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, we're all working against a clock, right? There's only mm-hmm. so much time. And especially if you're in your 30s, I hate saying this because it's such, it's so patriarchal and all that stuff, but it, it's so true. You do have limited time. There are money issues, there's time issues, everything, even the investigative process takes time. So give yourself enough leeway and runaway to, to figure out what's going on because it's so unique. So we did that. My OB, I was like, this isn't working. Like it's not, and she's like, yeah, I agree. Let's, you know, I think you should go to my, one of my old colleagues. He's pretty well known in the Chicago infertility space. So go there. You do the battery of tests. I don't think I knew though, how many tests you have to take. It's so much blood work. They're giving you these numbers and it's like, what? Like my FSH, what are these Mm -hmm. numbers? And they're telling you in the moment and it's still so overwhelming to remember, you know, your partner has to take tests too. And you just don't know like what the combination is going to be. And so I knew my cycle was a little weird, not in a endometriosis, not in a PCOS kind of way, Mm -hmm. but I have always had a really short cycle. So like 24 days, 25 days, that is actually an issue. So I didn't realize it. So there's two phases to your, to your cycle, in case you didn't know. The second half is for most people is 14 days. It's pretty rare that it's not 14 days. It's usually that first half where the follicle and the egg develop is where you see the most variable. And mine was just really short. So those three or four shortened days meant that my eggs weren't getting mature enough to be able to fertilize at all. We tried Clomid. It didn't work. My body just tends to reject 
like drugs in some ways. Um, it just didn't do anything for me at all. The next step with that is really IVF. I could have gone the IUI route and tried it. And I know that for some people, insurance requires you to try so many times. Um, luckily, at the time, we had really good insurance at our previous employer. And so I was able to just kind of bypass that and, and go right to IVF. And that is, it's a, it's a big thing. I know some people feel really overwhelmed by it because it is really big, but I was 33. My husband was 35. Realistically, we didn't know how much time we had. The idea of taking six months to a year of doing IUI cycles, which traditionally don't have that much of a success rate, seemed like just not the right fit for us. While you were going through all of this, did your friends and family know? No, I may have told my mom. I definitely didn't tell my sisters. We didn't tell my husband's family. I am a pretty private person. I, I, I like to process my own emotions first before I share them with the world. I didn't share. I didn't know what to say. Like yeah. I didn't know how to explain it. And so I just didn't. Yeah, that's very true. You are a very private person. And while you were going through it, you had shared bits and pieces, but I never knew what to ask, or I, I was kind of scared to ask, and I wasn't sure if something I would say or ask you would be either too personal or offensive or just not appropriate. You know, and I think if you're the friend listening to this and going like, how do I help them? I think just asking the, a really generic question, like, it sounds like you're going through some stuff. Is there like, can I help? Can I do anything? Um, just let you know that I'm here if you need my support. Kind of just opening up the door, I think is a good way to approach it and just let them kind of take a step and tell them what you need, you know, tell you what you, they need. Because it is, it is a little uncomfortable and you don't know. And honestly, I don't think I knew, I wouldn't have gotten offended. I'm not really that <laughs> person. I probably wouldn't have, but um for me, it's just more of a processing thing. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And I feel like you would want uh, more of an answer than I have to give. And so it felt like incomplete. Yeah, it's my, it's my fun personality, right? The other thing that I did learn from all of the testing is um, that I had DOR, so diminished ovarian reserve, which was the other thing that kind of pushed us really into IVF. Um, I, my numbers weren't horrible. They were a little bit lower than what they should be for my age at that point. So that was the other reason why we're like, let's, let's get in this and, and go. And I feel like if you do get diagnosed with DOR, they typically push you right to the, the IVF route because you just have less to work with. And the clock is even moving a little bit more, a little bit faster, which is just another little bit more overwhelming piece, right? So with the DOR, are they looking at your AMH levels? Yeah, they are. And so you have less eggs mm -hmm. to work with. Nobody wants to hear that, but I mean, luckily it wasn't horrible. So I felt really validated that that was the, the IVF was the right choice for me at that point, because you, you just don't know how fast things are going to unrival. That's where I was. And it, you know, I am somebody who likes data. I like numbers. I'm not as probably emotional when it comes to stuff like this, I tend to be like, I tend to check my emotions to the side and focus really just like on the path that we need to take. And so 
if you're looking for a fertility doctor, you know, you have to find one that meets your personality, right? That matches what you need. I never wanted somebody who was warm and fuzzy. I don't, I don't want one that was going to hug me and tell me that it was okay. That makes me uncomfortable and gives me feeling hives. I, so I found one that it was, I would say he's a little quirky, a little weird. You've also met him, but I, he's a good diagnostic person. He's able to kind of unravel an individual's issues and create a good plan. And for me, that was important. There are a lot of good sites out there. Fertility IQ is one of them where you can look at all the personalities, look at ratings of doctors and stuff like that. So that's where it does sometimes help to talk with your friends to find out who's gone to what, you know, go to social media and post anonymously in your mom's group about things um, to find the right fit. But finding that right fit is really important. And it's okay if the first doctor that you meet doesn't match what you need. You know, yeah. you're not locked into anything. You can go find somebody else that is that a better is fit. So true. I mean, I've seen three. Right. Maybe and, I'll move on to another one. I don't know. We'll see. But that's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, it's your, it's your, I mean, it sounds so like cliche, but it's your body. It's your situation. So you have to feel comfortable with it. Don't let anybody else tell you that you don't get to decide what's right for you. Yeah, no, that's amazing advice and totally accurate. I did go see the same doctor as you. Yeah. He was a very good doctor, but I need somebody a little bit more warm and fuzzy. And that's yeah. going to tell me like, it's going to be okay. Like we can do this versus don't ever talk to me. Kind of thing. Yeah. So I just need a but, little bit more hand holding. And that's okay. That doesn't make it bad or good. That just means that's where you're at in, in your journey. And yeah. that's what you need. And it's, yeah. sometimes it's, you know, it's so hard for women to acknowledge, like to put yourself first and say, this is what I need, especially, you know, when you're married, if you already have other kids, it's a lot. So it's, it's something that just be okay. And if you need that support, ask your friends, ask your spouse, your, you know, your significant other, but it's okay to need more than what you're getting. So while you were going through IVF, what was the best way of getting information or resources to help you make decisions? Some of it was support groups. So there's some really good ones out there that are, are helpful. Um, I did a lot of researching on numbers, looking through like actual research studies, kind of looking at the data and the math behind it. Because once again, data nerd here. So I did a lot of digging that way. And, you know, if you brought up a term, I just like anything that he would brought up, I was like, can you write that down for me? Can you send me an email? Can you make a copy for me? Um, and I would go and research it. And then if I had a question, I would go and I would ask the, I would call the nurse. I would send an email and I would just follow up until I felt comfortable with what I was being given and what the path was. Yeah. It sounds like you advocated a lot for yourself. Like if you didn't know something, you went and found the answer. Yeah. I, I tried to a lot. And some of that is just my just general mode. But also I think because I didn't feel like it was something wrong with me to have infertility, um, that helps me advocate. I think if you're struggling with that um, on a personal level, it's really hard to advocate for yourself because you just don't have that confidence that you're, you're, you're okay, that you're doing the right thing, that this isn't something that you did, that you're wrong that you did something bad. It's not because you ate McDonald's for, you know, <laughs> six weeks straight in, in college. That's not, you know, there's nothing that you did to impact this. It just is, but you kind of have to love yourself first. Did you just do one round of IVF? 
So we did one round. We were really lucky. You know, I feel like anybody who's gone through IVF can quote off their, you know, egg stats and embryo stats here. We only got 12 eggs, which was like, you know, compared to a lot of people, that's not a lot. And it's, um, that was probably tied to the DOR. There just was less there. I think all 12 were mature, 10 fertilized, and we were actually really lucky that eight made it to day five. It really kind of validated that also that my issue was that my body wasn't allowing my eggs to mature. So there was never a point, but when we did it chemically and forced the maturity, everything was okay. We ended up doing a fresh transfer and it worked. It was really a relief because I was, you know, I was 33. I was starting to feel the pressure of not having kids, not because, you know, just the external world always kind of crushes you a little bit more, right? Why aren't you doing it according to this timetable? Why aren't you having kids yet? People don't mean to put what ifs on you and timelines on you, but society as a whole just kind of does that. When you're going through IVF and so you actually get that pregnancy like positive, which is huge because I had never had one before. It felt really, really big. Then you go through all the blood work, right? And you're getting all these numbers. And so, and you're going through all these ultrasounds, you get so much more data than anybody else normally who's pregnant gets, right? So then you realize all these points where something can go wrong. And I think that just ratchets up the stress I know it did for me because I'm like, oh my gosh, like, (laughs) so if my numbers don't double, that's a problem. You know, if you don't see, if when I go in for my six week ultrasound, you don't see, you know, the sack, that's a problem. Like it just starts to feel overwhelming. And I think that's where I actually ended up talking a lot to my boss who I had to kind of tell her what was going on because I was going to be out a lot for, you know, I, Every other day you have to go in for blood work as part of the whole IVF journey. And there's a lot of time, a lot of doctor's appointments, a lot of travel, a lot of things that you're out for. And so eventually it just came to a point where I had to share with her. And luckily we have a very good relationship and she was able to kind of say, you know, it's okay. Like she didn't, you know, find her second daughter. They couldn't see her on the ultrasound until she was eight weeks. And it gives you just a little bit of hope. Right. But so go through all of these, you know, things and we get to the, the graduation mark. And so eight weeks is usually when you graduate from your RE and you transfer over to your OB. And for my first, for Jay, it was um, that I literally graduated and two days later I started bleeding. And <sighs> Dr. Google is horrible when you start looking up bleeding and pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. There's no good that comes from that at all. But, you know, and and if you read it, it talks about like a little bit of blood. It's not a big deal, right? Well, I went from, it was like a, like a heavy period. It was so much blood. And I was so petrified mind you at this point. I didn't, I hadn't told anybody. It was just me and my husband and that knew And I was so freaked out, like just so, so freaked out. And so, you know, they, you call your OB and they're like, well, we'll, let's get you in right away. Let's do an ultrasound. And um, it turns out that I had a subchorionic hemorrhage, which is sometimes called an SCH because it's a mouthful. It's essentially a blood pocket in like, that's pushing on. It can be on top of the baby, it can be underneath the embryo, like it can be all over, but mine was kind of on the side and below. And so it just 
pushed out all of this blood. It is so scary. If anybody goes through this, it is so, so scary. And I think the worst part is there is nothing that you can do. It kind of goes back to what we, I think we had talked about at another point where there's something so mentally screwy with infertility and going through the treatments and pregnancy that you feel like you should be in control of what happens to your body and inside your body and you have zero control. It, it just plays with your mind so much because there's nothing you can do other than worry. The things with these bleeds is sometimes they do end up kind of forcing a termination of the pregnancy. Um, mine was pretty big. It was, I want to say at its biggest, it was like probably five centimeters when you think about how big an embryo is at like eight weeks, I mean, it was the size of the sack, if not bigger. And it was so overwhelming. I ended up going on bed rest. And the other part of it is there's a ton of cramping that goes along with it. Also messes with your mind. And I remember my OB saying like, I'm going to put you on bed rest. There's nothing that actually says that bed rest is going to help or hurt anything. But she's found that it makes the the pregnant mom feel at least like she's doing something. So she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to say that, that do that, try to relax and just drink a ton of water and be on bed rest for a week. And every week I would go in for an ultrasound to check what was happening. I remember that feeling, and I'm sure other people, I'm sure you've had this too, where when you go in for the ultrasound, that deep breath that you take the first time before you hear the heartbeat, like it's literally, I'm holding my breath every single time. And even now, like it makes me, I can feel the emotion associated with it. And like those, those tears and just, please let there be a heartbeat, please let there be a heartbeat. And then finally, when they see it, it's like, okay, okay. I can just, I can breathe for finally a moment. We have another week where it's okay. So my bleed ended up being almost five weeks. Like I remember sitting it was Mother's Day. I was sitting with my sister and my husband and my parents and we were out at a restaurant and I, we were celebrating my mom and I so wanted to say something. I just could not share it with anyone. I was so afraid that something was going to happen. I think I didn't share my pregnancy maybe until like 15 or 16 weeks with people because I just didn't I didn't have hope or belief that it was going to be okay. It was a really, really stressful thing. And I think it just, it put a little bit of a shadow over the whole pregnancy because the veil is off and you realize that how much can go wrong. I I thought getting pregnant was the hurdle. And every day, every moment, especially before you can feel the baby move is so overwhelming. I wish I had known while I was going through it, but it's okay, especially, you know, with IVF, people expect like you got pregnant. Yeah, you should be so excited about the whole pregnancy and everything, like so ready to be a mom. There is such trauma associated with going through infertility, experiencing losses, experiencing kind of blips, like even a bleed, which is actually very common in IVF pregnancies. It's okay not to enjoy the pregnancy, It's okay to be afraid and not like it. With Jay, you had a pretty tough delivery as well, right? Yeah, it was the worst. (laughs) I mean, and I say that with love, but it was legitimately the worst. Yeah, 
it was, that was traumatizing in its own right. And I actually, I think honestly, it was more traumatizing for my husband than it actually was for me. He was an observer, an outsider to it and could do anything about it. And I was just in the midst of it. Everything was going well, developmental wise, like every, you know, I was healthy. The baby was healthy. We were all good. Started having contractions on a Friday night. And, you know, we did the, the new parent thing, we timing them and, you know, we, it ended up being kind of regular, close enough, like four minutes. And so we went to the emergency room, you know, got admitted and never really progressed. Like I was still in, then the contractions ended up being really irregular. So after a certain point, they send you home. So I got sent home and I ended up from that Friday night all the way through Monday morning, I was contracting from it. Sometimes it was every minute to every 30 minutes. It was all over the board. I, I don't think I slept. You know, we talked about advocating for yourself and I was really good on the front end of the pregnancy, but I didn't do, I, I don't think I knew I could advocate for myself and tell my doctor, like, I need more than I, I can't keep doing this. The nurse came in. She's like, I talked to your doctor and she's like, I want to know if we could give you medication, would you take it to help relieve the pain? Would you take it? And I was like, huh? Like I'm in my, like, I'm so out of it. I'm like, what? She's like, would you take it? I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm exhausted. Of course I would. So get admitted. Yay. Get my epidural because at that point I honestly needed it. And I felt like I experienced a lot of labor. I was good and it worked for a little bit and then it stopped working. Somehow it just wasn't, it was not working. And no matter what he did, it didn't work. Went for at least 12 hours of that, where I was literally gripping onto the side of the bed, like shit, like, yeah, it was rough. And so that's where I think my husband was like, I don't know what to do. Like, here you are in pain. Like, I can't, I can't help you. I can't stop it. I finally got to 10 centimeters and they were like, okay, push. Now, granted, this is like, I could, I'm pretty sure I could feel almost everything. So even though I didn't want a natural childbirth, I was, I was doing it, pushing for almost three hours with Jay. And like, I, I mean, and every time they would come back in and they would be like, okay, but you're making progress. Finally delivered him at, it was like three o'clock in the morning Oh my God. on that Tuesday, he finally delivered and then even more happened. So he ended up swallowing some fluid. And so right away he was intubated and he was rushed down to the NICU, even though he was, um, he was almost 41 weeks. So he was full term. And I remember just yelling to my husband, like, go with him, go with him. And he was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know. And then while that's happening, they couldn't get the placenta out of me. And so I didn't realize this until happened with my second son as well, actually, that um, placental adhesion is actually a lot more common in IVF. So it's like, you know how we're all afraid that we're going to have like the placenta is going to detach and that like everyone's afraid of that because it's a normal fear. Mine just wouldn't come out. And the problem is after you deliver the baby, it needs to come out. So the body stops sending blood because then you start to hemorrhage. So I literally, the doctors are like, up in me, like with their hands trying 
to rip it out. They're trying to, they're giving me more drugs to try to like relax my body because it, I mean, it was super, super painful because once again, epidural wasn't working. And finally, I don't know what happened, but the doctor, like something switched and he was like, okay, we got to go now. I went under and they actually removed it. They had to do a, basically a DNC um, to get it out. And so I was under, and then I woke up like two hours later and I was like, what happened? I didn't even know I was out for that long. And my husband had just come back from the NICU. He didn't even know I had gone through that. You know, then my, my son ended up being in the NICU because he swallowed fluid and then there was jaundice. And so this was, it was a lot for a first delivery, (laughs) first pregnancy. It was really really overwhelming and scary. And so that's when I realized like how okay it is to not love every part of your pregnancy and not look back at it with roses and joy just because you went through IVF. So with the pregnancy with T, your second son, were you able to enjoy it a little bit more this time? I will say that going back through IVF and doing a fat, a frozen transfer for the second was kind of weird. And it just felt really off. And actually the first, and I'm not saying that this is why the first transfer didn't work, but it felt that way because it just felt uncomfortable and weird. And it took me like a full frozen transfer cycle to like get back in the groove of what infertility is about. But with my, my second son, it took three tries to get. So two FETs didn't work. The third one worked and that was kind of, that was my end point. I I don't think I could have gone through a third or a fourth one at that point. The pregnancy was a lot easier um, the second time around, except for I got gestational diabetes, you know, the BDs. So yeah, which I've also learned is much more common with IVF pregnancies. I didn't know that. And luckily, once again, my bo- my same boss, she had gestational diabetes for both of her pregnancies, so she could talk me through it. And I have, you know, we have a friend who also ha- went through it as well. Um, so I had people to reference with, but it was like, it was like a whole other, like, it was like infertility 2.0. It was just so much more to deal with again. And once again, I'm like, can't I just have, like, you just see all these people and granted, maybe it's all just illusion. People, people generally don't share their dirty laundry. Right. But don't you see, like, you see these people who are like, I pushed for 15 minutes and (laughs) like, I didn't have anything. And I only gained 10 pounds my whole pregnancy. And, and I'm here, I am like trying to like, walk in the middle of like a snowstorm because you got to walk after you eat with gestational diabetes. And it just felt like, come on university. Can you just give me a break? Can I just please have (laughs) like a win here with infertility? You're like, didn't I go through enough? My first pregnancy, you know, was, was rough. The delivery was rough. You know, can I just have a win here? But then at the same time, I think you, the thing about infertility and being aware of everyone else's struggle, if I kind of like circle it all back, is that you realize that no matter how much you've suffered, there's probably somebody else who is going through even even worse infertility battle than you, who has gone through eight rounds of IVF and still doesn't have a baby, who, you know, 
ends up getting diagnosed with cancer after going through a round of IVF because the fertility drugs triggered something in their body. And so, you know, it could always be worse. And so I think that's another factor in this, this mind game of being pregnant is that you feel guilty a little bit. You feel like I shouldn't complain. I shouldn't, I should make sure that it's always, everything is always good and put up that front because it's always, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones, even though it sucks, you know, I'm well past the second birth of my, of my second son. It's that infertility you want to compare, but there really is, it's like, this is not the pain Olympics or the suffering Olympics. There's no winner. We're all suffering in our own way. And so it helps to just acknowledge that you've been there and that you have the battle scars and help kind of lift each other up when they need it because we all need help at different times. Do you have any questions or is there something you want to talk about? Reach out and let's chat. Follow me on Instagram at fried underscore eggs underscore podcast.